Let's get back into what we're teaching uh, in Romans. And, and I was, I was kind of preparing for this. I got to thinking about, um, as we finished last week's uh, sermon and, and service, Lachansky and I were, were talking, and he said something, which I'll tell you what he said in a minute. But it, it, made me, it kind of set me in motion for the whole week. And, um, and it was a theme of last week's message, but it wasn't as clear as just and simple as Lachansky has said it. And so I was just thinking uh, about this, and, and, I, and I was thinking about just, how just me driving in a car and, when, when we, and we drive around and I don't know if you've ever had this hit you but have you ever been driving and just kind of think and had the thought of like how much you take for granted uh, this gonna happen when you drive to get from, from one place to another I mean like just how much of it just that you don't even think about I mean like things like that when you stick your key in the ignition and turn it your car's gonna crank like, yeah, you, you turn it, but you, you, you don't even think about that it's going to crank. Or that when you, when you put the, the car in gear, that it's actually going to go forward instead of backward. Or that as you're driving down the road and you come up to a traffic light, that your light, when it's green, the rest of the lights are going to be red. Or when you're driving on 45 or I-10 and you've got 100 other people around you, that they're going to stay in their lane, that they're not going to be texting and, and watching YouTube videos while they drive, that they've actually gone through the process of getting certified to be a safe driver. Like, we don't know. We don't have our licenses on our window to show that we know how to parallel park and things like that. Like, we take that for granted, and, and as that kind of mounts up, and then I start thinking about just, like, the random things that I've experienced over my life when I'm driving. Like, I've been driving, and, and I was in the car with my parents when I was young, and, and as we pass a telephone pole, it gets struck by lightning, literally, like it's next to our car, and it just explodes. And like, you know, and, and because it was the tallest, uh, tallest object, it was in probably not the case that we could have been struck. It took it for us, but yet it could have fallen on us or whatever, and it didn't. Or I was driving uh, behind another car one time, and the car in front of me just randomly, this limb falls from the tree and falls on this car, like just random stuff. And so now that you're rightly terrified of driving, the point of all of this, and this is what John said to me last week, he's like, man, if we could just understand that we are not in control. I mean, and if, so if you just go down that road when you drive, it's quite obvious. Like, we think we're in control, but we're really not. There's so much beyond our scope of control, beyond our scope of awareness, that we just cannot affect, that we have to see that we're not in control. And, and what we see, and the, kind of the point of today is that one of the weirdest upside-down comforting realities that we can come to grips with is that we are not in control. It doesn't sound comforting. It actually sounds terrifying. It makes me want to walk everywhere, but then you've got, you know, rabid squirrels that could bite your ankles and who knows what else. I mean, it's just a crazy, unpredictable world. I listened to um, This American Life yesterday, and they were talking about, you know, the world of coincidence and how there's, there's just kind of the, the marvel of it. And there's people that chalk it up as like this crazy intertwined reality and other people that just give it no second thought. But just like how there's always just these weird, strange things like you're vacuuming and you're singing I Should Have Been a Cowboy by Toby Keith and then you turn on the radio and it's on. Who's that happened to? All of us, right? Yeah. But I, I say that it's comforting to realize we're not in control because if you, if you just sit and look around you, it is an inevitable reality. It's an inevitable reality that you have to face that there are there's just so much that you have no control over. So coming to grips with that is really your first step towards comfort. So let's keep that 
in mind today as we work through our passage. You can go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them to Romans 9. Uh, we looked at Romans 9, 1 through 18 last week, uh, and, and then this week we're going to look at Romans 9, 19 through 33. Last week was really part one of this long sermon. Uh, this week is part two because really this whole chapter is just one big thought. And, and as I thought about it, it's like what the, the idea of this sermon is why I am grateful for God's election. That's the road we started down last week and that we're going to continue on today. And so just a reminder of how we got here as Paul has been writing this pastoral letter to the Romans. We've, we've covered chapters one through eight up until uh, last week. And Paul lays out this astonishingly de detailed and beautiful treatise of our salvation. I mean, he does it just with such meticulous tender care and boldness all through chapters 1 through 8 of Romans. And we kind of went through this progression of, of seeing our great need for a Savior, like that we are all sinful. We've all come up way short. We would never choose God on our own. And we see God's perfect judgment. And we see that in full view. And then we see our glorious deliverance in Christ as the one who fulfilled the law instead of being left to fulfill it ourselves by our moral lives. And then we saw our struggle to live out this redeemed life, as Paul continues. And then that brought us to this great picture of our assurance, of in, our assurance and our incorruptible hope that comes from this reality that our salvation is is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And and. And it's hard to go through Romans and not just hit this every week as part of our review. So you'll probably hear it again next week. Um, well, Matt's teaching next week, so who knows what he'll review. But uh, be excited about that, by the way. Matt Stevens, one of our other elders, is teaching next week. Um, but you'll hear this over and over again. So part one of our sermon looked at two of three questions that Paul addresses in this chapter. And, and Paul, what he's doing here is addressing the problem that the people of Israel were facing as, as they understood themselves to be God's chosen people and because of them being who they were, descendants of Abraham in this lineage. And yet Paul is saying, no, 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 that doesn't get you anything. You don't get an automatic bid because of your position in the family of Israel into the kingdom of heaven. He's in, he, so this is what he's addressing. And so we this first question that we addressed last week was this question of has God's promise failed? And we saw the answer was no, because um, it, it, it would be a very short book if the answer was yes, because we, we, we'd be done. Um, but the answer is no, and it says it was never by heritage or descent that, um, that, that Israel is redeemed, or anyone is saved. It's always been by faith. It's always been a spiritual work. And it's by God's showing of mercy in his sovereign choice that any are saved. So that was the first question. The second question was then, well, is God unjust then? Is he unjust? Is he unjust that, that, that not everybody gets mercy? And he says, no, he's not. Because mercy, by definition, is undeserved and unearned. So it is sin. So what we saw last week, it is sin that condemns us in the presence of a holy God. And then we only find salvation through God's mercy as he turns our hearts to him. God shows mercy to whom he will. So what we saw last week, that is his choice. And we saw that without God's mercy, none of us would be saved because it is by his work, not ours. And we see that God is still a righteous judge where he does as any good judge does, which is what? He, a good judge condemns the guilty 
and acquits the innocent. And it is through this work of God entering in in mercy to, to, turn, to turn those who he does to acknowledge the Messiah Jesus as their atoning sacrifice, their Savior, the one that makes them clean, righteous, pure, standing in good standing before God. It is through that that we are innocent and nothing else. So therefore, we can be called innocent. So that's what we've seen up to this point. This week, we look at Paul's third question. So before we go any farther, let me pray. Um, God, so we just give you this time. We just confess that our, our understanding and wisdom falls way short. And Lord, that as we are dealing with eternal things, we often feel the strain to grasp Lord, the understanding. And so we pray as we go through, uh, continue to go through this uh, text today, that you would give us humble hearts, God. You would give us an understanding beyond our own. Lord, let us understand you to be who you are and we as you're created to be who we are. And Lord, that your work would be complete in this time. Lord, that none of us sitting here would walk out um, different, that none of us would walk out the same as we were when we walked in, that we would be, that we would encounter you, God, encounter your living word, and Lord, be, and just be brought to understanding by the Holy Spirit, God, that, that we would be changed. I pray that you would take these words that come from my mouth, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, catch them aflame in our lives, in our hearts, and our minds. Lord, that your work of transformation through your word and the Spirit, Lord, would, would continue. So Lord, we give you this time. Speak through me or in spite of me. Whatever it takes, God, this time is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so what is Paul's third question? Let's look at Romans 9.19. Um, he, he said, oh, by the, sorry, by the way, I said, I, I said turning your Bibles. We'll also have stuff on the screen. We use the YouVersion Bible app. You can click more, click events. The passages will be there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one near you on the floor. And if you don't have one at all, we would love to, you to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Okay, sorry, I forgot to say that earlier. So now with all that being said, Romans 9.19. Thank you, Neil. Romans 9.19 says this. This is Paul's third question. You will say to me then, why does he, that's God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why does he still find fault? For who can he resist his will? This sounds similar to the question from 14, but is more from the perspective of just the human experience. The, the question is kind of, how can this be fair? Like, how is it fair that, that God is responsible for my salvation, like not me, and yet I am still held accountable for my sin? Why am I still to blame if it is God's sovereign choice that causes someone to be saved? And then possibly kind of a side kind of result is this kind of moment of like, well, then why should I even try? That's kind of where we're at now. So Paul gives three responses in response in response to this question in verses 20 through 29. And all of these responses, they work to bring us to a right understanding of who God is. So thinking about the response to this question, just as we go into it, understanding that the necessity to understand rightly is that we understand who God is rightly. So we find Paul's first response in verses 20 and 21, and he puts this first response in the form of three questions focused on who we are. So get this, for us to understand who God is, the first response is just digging into who we are, which is interesting. So let's look at 20 and 21. It says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So what are the questions we see here that in this first response, these three questions of who we are that Paul is calling our attention to? The first question we see there at the beginning of verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you to question God? Who are you to challenge God? That's the first question. We see here in the second part of verse 20, he said, where it says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Does the created have the right to challenge the creator? And then, and then the next picture we have here in verse 21 is the potter and the clay. Does that which is being shaped get to speak into its form? All three of these questions are meant to point out one thing. They're meant to point out the vast difference between mankind and God. It is, it is putting them right next to each other to see the stark contrast. You know, we, th- there's this there's common thing where people take pictures of their babies. You know, the Robinsons have a newborn. Um, th- there's a bunch of them out there that in our church right now. It's kind of fun. But you'll see these little pictures pop up of like one, you know, Bria's, Bria's Estella. We've got a bunch of these. It's so fun. You know, one month, one month Estella. But you see it. The concept's there, right? You see like one month, two months, Three months goes all the way to a year, and then you start doing one year, two year. And what's interesting is, like, if you're with these babies every day, you don't really see them change. But, like, I haven't seen little Peter Robinson for, like, two weeks. And he's, like, a different kid now. And it's not y'all's fault. It's, I just haven't seen him in two weeks. He, he's just, like, a different kid. He's changed so much. But if I were with him every day, I wouldn't really recognize how much he's changed. And so it's this picture. When you put this picture from, like, you know, from one week to one year, all of a sudden, like, oh, this is, like, so different. This kid is so different. They don't even look the same. Like, like, before, when, when, when Peter was born, he looked like Nil, and now, a year later, he looks like Haley. It's so weird. Like, that, that's what we used to get. Like, my, my daughter, for her first three years of life, she was li- just Amber's mini-me. And it was like, oh, my gosh, that's just little Amber. And now, more and more and more, people are saying, you know, she looks like you, which I'm like, don't tell her that. That's really sad. <laughs> tell her she looks like Amber. That's much better. Um, but, you know, but it's just that the whole point of these questions is to see in vast contrast who God is and who we are. And, and Paul just wants to make it really clear this vast chasm that is between the reality of, the, of, of those two persons, of us in God. God, you know, if you read through Psalms, I love it because, because over and over again, you kind of see this, this, this picture of like God, like, he, you know, you, you see the writer of the Psalms straining, straining to grasp words to attribute to the majesty of God. And they're kind of painting this picture of like the highest of highest of highest heavens. And it's like whatever you can imagine to be the highest, grandest thing you can picture, God, and then and he puts that in your head. And then he says, God is higher. So, like, God is the ultimate. He is higher than the highest heavens. We, what are we? We're made of what? We're made of dust. We are, man, I just had, this is one of those days. Um, We're just dust. And albeit we're created beautiful and with dignity, but really all we are is just pretty dirt. We're pretty dirt, especially compared to the majesty of God. And then compared to the majesty of God, it's only by his design and by his fingerprints that we're pretty because we're really just not pretty at all compared to him. But thankfully, we are created in his image and he is working to restore that. 
So if God is God and we are who we are, is it fitting at all that we should challenge God? I mean, you see how that starts in verse 20, but who are you, O person? Who are you, this, this little person, to question, to challenge God? And then he just expands through all that. So as Paul writes this, he has Isaiah 29, 16 in mind here. Let's read that real quick. Isaiah 29, 16 says, You turn things upside down. You hear that? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to his maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. Saying like, hey, he thinks he created me for this, but this is what I'm created for. And you see, you turn things upside down. Like he's like, you've got it so backwards. You've got it so wrong. And it's not that we don't get to ask questions. I we, we just went as a family to see Smallfoot yesterday. Really cute movie, but it's, it, there's this community of yetis, and they, ha- and they live up in the high mountain of the Himalayas, and, and they've got this complex belief system, really complex. And they're told, and it's all inscribed on these little stones that the stones keeper keeps. And I'm not giving anything away because this is all in the opening song, okay? And so, but yet they're told not to question anything. It says, hey, if you have a question about anything, just push it down. Don't pay attention to it. And it says, and you'll be okay, and you'll have a good day. Like, so it's, this is not the picture here. It's not saying don't question anything. God, I mean, you think about all throughout Scripture, God invites us to bring our every care and concern to him. And James, he tells us, you know, if you lack wisdom, go to the one, go and ask God, the one who will not reproach you for asking for what you need. He's saying, come, like, God invites us to ask questions all the time. Questions are welcome. They're important, but the manner of which we ask is what matter. We do not ask as if God answers to us, as if somehow we, the created, get to ask of him as if we were, as if we were the creator. That's the point here. John Stott says this, such a person manifests a reprehensible spirit of rebellion against God a refusal to let God be God and acknowledge his or her true status as creature and sinner. Instead of such presumption, we need, like Moses, to keep our distance, take off our shoes in recognition of the holy ground on which we stand, and even hide our face from him. I mean, do you have that reference, that reverence? I mean, how, how, how do you approach God? Interesting. Paul's emphasis here, looking at the potter and the clay, the potter has the right to shape his clay into vessels for different purposes. Out of the same lump of clay, he can make a vessel that will be set on, on, on a shelf for, for beautiful display and for nothing other than just to, be, just to be beheld. And then out of that same lump of clay, he can make a bowl that's just meant to wash dirty dishes or to wash dirty hands or dirty feet. And it's the prerogative of the creator. And it's the purpose of the clay. So God has the right to deal with fallen humanity according to both his wrath and his mercy. And this is what was argued last week in verses 10 through 18. So Paul's first response is to call us to see God as God and us, his creation, as such. The, the call is to recognize you're not in control and be humble. Be humbled before a mighty, holy creator God. Paul's second response is pointing out how God reveals himself. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. 
It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So coming back to that, we must allow God to be God. Paul here in these passages, in these verses, are call, is calling us to the reality um, with a worldview shaped by some realities about who God is. First off, God's actions are always in agreement with his nature. Secondly, God is always self-consistent and never self-contradicting. And then thirdly, God determines to be himself and to be seen to be himself. That's, that's the framework Paul is working in. That's what he assumes to be reality. So the, the, what these two verses show us is this. Verse 22 and 23, they're parallel to one another, meaning they are, they are building on working together to make one point. They're working to show that God is the author of our salvation and that we are the authors of our damnation, of our need to be saved. If you don't like the word damnation, it means that you need to be saved. Let's just, okay? It means that you're, 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 in, a bad, you're in a bad way, you're in a bad place, and you, you can't do anything about it, and you've been condemned to this place. So the right word is damnation. It's just some people don't like it, but it's reality. God is the author of our salvation. We are the author of our damnation. God is responsible for our salvation. We are responsible for our condemnation. God did not create evil people. Do not misread this. Read the words here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? Endured with much patience vessels of wrath. He is, he is enduring and persevering and putting up with and, walk, and giving space for, with great tenderness, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He did not create evil people he is putting up with them it is see that here it says they were prepared for destruction but it doesn't say who prepared them it doesn't say god but contrast that with the next part where it says compare you know it says which you know vessels of mercy which he has he has prepared beforehand for glory do you see the contrast it is very clear god is the one who prepares for mercy vessels for mercy but we see in his patience and his caring he endures and puts up with vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction so what prepares for destruction we talked about this last week this was in romans 124 where we see people are handed over to the life and death that they have chosen and just like again from 124 and last week with Pharaoh's heart it seems clear to say that it is our own sin that prepares us for destruction God's mercy, in his mercy, he prepares us for salvation, but our sin prepares us for destruction. This is the heart of the mystery. And it's, it's a, it's, 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 it messes with our brains a little bit, right? Because, again, it's like, wait, what? Timothy Keller says this. Somehow, if God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not see his glory. I don't think Paul is giving us much more than a hint here, but it is a very suggestive hint. For the biggest question is, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? And here Paul seems to say that God's chosen course to save some and to leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme we can imagine. 
This may seem strange, strange to us, but that is the point. We are not God and cannot know everything or decide what is best. We are told his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. And I'll tell you what, I, we, we talked last week about if you, if you call God's sovereign choice of election into question, we start running into problems with just God's sovereignty overall. And, and, I, and I, I, I don't know if I said this last week, excuse me, but I, I backed into this conviction. Um, I didn't grow up talking about any of this in my stream of theology, um, but I definitely had a, a bit more of a, I just didn't. And I had a hard time reconciling kind of this, this sovereign choice. But again, as I, as I kind of looked at all of the other realities of why we need to be saved, how we are saved, who God is and how he works, I just, I, I, I kind of backed into it. I was like, I have no other way to see it other than that somehow this is a beautiful picture of God's perfect judgment and perfect mercy coming hand in hand. And the promise, the beautiful promise here is that when all is said and done that we just saw in Romans eleven thirty three, when all is said and done, and we can see God's judgment perfectly with our own eyes, we will be satisfied. It will be satisfying. It, we, it, just, as, just as Keller said, like, we, will, we will be, it will, it will be obvious that this is the perfect way in which God to extend His glory and redeem and keep His promise. God's judgment will prove itself perfect. So in summary of this part, in an election, God comes in, softens our hearts, and makes us good. In hardening, God simply passes over and lets people have the way they have chosen. John Stott says, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy, which is another word for like kind of contradiction of perspectives, contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve. But it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. And so just to give you a quick picture, um, I had these friends I went to college with, and just after college, I went back to visit them, and there's five of them, and, and I'm going to hang out, and I come into the room, and, and something's happening. They're around a the table, they're commiserating, they're, they're packing up bags, and I'm like, and I'm like what, are you, what are y'all doing? And they said, um, we're going to rob a bank. I was like, what? I was like, y'all you can't do that. Think about what you're doing. They're like, well, we need to pay off our, our school loans. Like, you can't do this. Like, stop. And, and, they, and they, they're, my, my, my cries are on deaf ears. They're packing up, and they start walking out the door, resolved to go. And I tackle one of them to the ground. That's all I can do. Okay, well, so this didn't happen. But if it was, did, it was cool. But the story continues. So um, I did, this didn't happen. Um, but so the, the four go, I just wanted to get your attention. I think we needed a break. But uh, <laughs> the four go out, and they go and they rob the bank. And the one that, that, that was tackled and held back, he, you know, is there. And they, they go to rob the bank. It goes south. They shoot a guard and, and kill the guard. And they end up getting arrested and, and life in prison. They're locked up. And the one who didn't go is walking around free. Now, to what credit of that person that, that, that got tackled is their freedom. They were just as rebellious. They were just as, as, as set on their ways. But yet, someone stepped in and arrested their rebellion. 
Now, of course, the analogy breaks down pretty quickly after that, but it's just a picture to see that it is only by God's mercy that we could have been intervened from the way that we have chosen. It is only by God's intervention that we would not run headlong into destruction. Go spend some time in Ephesians, specifically Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Read through Romans again and keep going. It's just, that's the reality. So now Paul comes back to the matter of Jewish unbelief as he continues in Romans 9, 24 through 29. And we kind of pick up steam through the rest of the the passage here. We're going to read that whole section here. It says, uh, 24, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place, and in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, which was totally wiped out. So let's just walk through this real quickly. Verse 24, so we start there. Once again, what matters is not physical descent, but God's calling, and he's called the Jews, but not only the Jews, he's called the Gentiles. Having looked at the patriarchs, and as, as uh, we, we were given the example of Abraham in 7 through 13, and then in Exodus with Moses through 14 and 18 of, these pa- of this passage, this chapter, uh, Paul now moves to the time of the prophets. And when we look at these Old Testament passages that he's referencing, Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that God has not changed. And then maybe that's a broken record for the day, and I think that's good. God has always worked to make and keep his promises. Does that sound familiar? We've said that already today. So then the manner in which he does this is often through unexpected ways, surprising reversals. And so the first reference he gives is in Hosea. And I don't know if you, if you haven't read Hosea, especially just up through chapter 4, Talk about a, a beautiful picture of grace, forgiveness, and redemption. A beautiful picture of the gospel. I don't know if you know, but Hosea was a prophet of Israel. Israel was rebelling and forgot to give Israel a picture. He tells Hosea, go marry this prostitute, Gomer. And so he takes Gomer as his wife. They're married. Gomer does not remain faithful. She's out there still doing her thing. They're having kids, and it's not very clear if the kids are or Hosea's, or someone else's, but the names would say maybe they're someone else's because these things you see, not my people, not beloved, those are the names that were given to Hosea and Gomer's kids. That's what they translate to. This is not my child. This is not the one I love. And the rebe- and, and, and Gomer's infidelity, her rebellion, her, her disdain for a husband that took her continues and she continues down this path and by her own rebellion and choice she ends up not wanting to be married and she ends up being sold into slavery and what does Hosea do he goes and buys her off the block not to be his slave but to bring her back in as his wife what a beautiful picture so now this that is not his this was not loved is loved and so that's what Paul is calling to attention here Jewish history itself is a record of how God calls those who are not his people, my people. Those who were once not his people become his children. They had rebelled, and he says, I will bring you back. He 
he was prophesying about ethnic Israel in the exile. Here, Paul appears to be using it as a template for what God is now doing in the Gentiles. He's saying to the Jews, you know God has always been the God who blesses those who do not deserve it and could not have predicted it. And so if the Gentiles are flocking to become Christ's people now, where it's in Paul, when Paul's writing, he says, should that really be a surprise? Like, why are you shocked that they're being welcomed in? Why do you take that as an offense to your own promise? And then now Paul turns to Isaiah where, you know, and to show that God has not changed and that it has always been the case that God has not promised to bless all of ethnic Israel. Speaking again of the exile, God promised through Isaiah that only the remnant will be saved because Israel faced judgment. So it was only God's mercy on the remnant that prevented Israel from being destroyed out completely. Their offense was that great. They deserved it. But yet God's mercy, his commitment to keep his promise that he has made, he set aside a remnant to be able to return. What a great Old Testament example of God's righteous judgment. Paul is saying, you know God has always been the God who rejected those who thought they deserved his blessing and presumed on it. If the Jews are rejecting Christ and his people, should that really be a surprise that they now find themselves outside of the promise? They've claimed something as their own that was a gift from God. God is a God who keeps his promises through surprising reversals. He is a God who keeps his promises in ways that cannot always be predicted. And he is a God who is free to choose to give his undeserved mercy to whomever he wants and to continue to choose to give others over to the life and the destiny that they have chosen. God has always been in Abraham's day, Moses' time, the prophet's era, and today, and he will always be the same. So we're going to close with these last four verses of 30 through 33. Probably Paul really brings home this upside-down, topsy-turvy, unexpected reversals, this reality of how God works and what we are responsible for. And this really kind of brings together this, what is God responsible for? What are we responsible for? So we said we have three questions. We actually have kind of a bonus question here. Verse 30 says, what shall we say then? It says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That stone of of stumbling, that that, that, that rock of offense is Jesus. What do we see here? The Jews who knew and had it all have denied and rebelled. Think back to the beginning of this chapter. The the people of Israel, they were given the covenants, they were given the law, they were given the presence of God and having the temple and his holiness, they were given the promises of the Messiah and the Messiah himself, and yet they have denied and rebelled. The pagan Gentiles who didn't want anything to do with it, it was never even a thought of their mind, it was, it was, it was like in the antithesis of what they were pursuing, are now running to grace and salvation. That's what's happening here. And it's not that difficult to understand what, you know, what happened to the Jews and the Gentiles. If we, if we think about the different ways that we see religious or moral people, kind of an irreligious, unbelieving people, respond to the gospel today. 
you know, the irreligious and unbelieving, they may well kind of do the same thing to where they're above it all, it's beyond, it's way, you know, underneath them. It's, it's just the, the gospel is trampled underfoot, especially when they're young. But so often we see as time goes on, they often come to recognize their own sin. They come to fill their own spiritual emptiness, and they come to fill it quite poignantly because there's, 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 there's nothing in the way. But religious people, religious and just moral people, they're much less honest with themselves about their sin. And generally, they, they have a, a smugness, a condescending attitude towards others, and a feeling that, you know, I try hard, so God owes me. And this is those who are self-righteously religious, living by a stringent moral code, and that provides them their position over others and their standing before God. We see that religious people, they're offended by the gospel. You know, they're like, me, you know, I mean, I just heard this a couple weeks ago. You mean like a criminal, a murderer could believe in the 11th hour or at any moment and Jesus would save them? That, that, that's just too easy. That doesn't make sense. They don't deserve that. Or else they run the message through their own works righteousness grid and reinterpret it to fit to fit in this. And when they do this, they empty grace from the gospel. So this type of religious person thinks they've already heard the gospel. They think they have already tasted it, but yet they are their own righteousness. Look at verse 32. Why do people stumble over Jesus? Because faith in Jesus requires us to lay down any notion of self-righteousness and accept his righteousness which brings us back to where we started it calls it calls us to lay down any idea that we are in control and acknowledge that god is we must be humbled before we are raised up again being being humbled helps deliver us from this this reality that to, to pursue our redemption and salvation as if it were based on works, as we just saw in that passage. Verse 33, in referencing to passages from Isaiah, calls us to the reality that Christ is meant to be our foundation, the stone on which we stand, the one in whom we trust, instead of self-righteousness causing stumbling. There's a mystery to this that's hard to grasp. We, we see the absolute sovereignty of God over all of history and our complete responsibility to our own behavior held up next to one another as non-contradictory. And this is why surrendering control is our way to comfort. We have not only been given an understanding that helps comfort us, but even more, a comforter. We've been given a comforter, the one who satisfies our offense the one who makes us clean, the one who makes us whole, the one who gives us a hope that is not just of this world. So our opportunity today is to surrender, to be humble, to walk humbly and boldly before our God, experience, experience the upside-down, topsy-turvy topsy -turvy promise of Jesus. Well, I mean, think about it, like how upside-down it is we who are sinners can be saints. We who are rebels can be co-heirs with Christ. We who are, who are orphaned can be adopted sons and daughters. We've sinned against a holy God, but in his mercy, he has sent his son to redeem. If he is calling today, respond. 
respond. If you are already a Christ follower, do not, don't pick back up the mantle of self-righteousness. Don't pick that back up. Live humbly and boldly in the completed work of Jesus. Let us enjoy having a creator and being his created. Let us enjoy having one who molds and shapes us and being the one who is molded and shaped. Let us take comfort to know that God's justice is perfect and will be seen as such. I'll pray for us and we'll respond. So God, we love you. Um, we're grateful for your love for us. We thank you. We're thankful and in, 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 in awe and humbled by your sovereign grace. And that is such a perfect coupling. Your sovereign mercy, your sovereign grace, God, to see that, um, Lord, you are, you are, you are God. Lord, you are above the highest, the highest majesty we can imagine, Lord, that you created us. And Lord, in your mercy, you've stirred us up to repentance and salvation. Let us remember the work of Christ well now. I pray there's anyone in here that, that needs to respond to that invitation, that they would do so, or that they would have the courage and the, and the humility and, and, and hear the invitation to joy in life. So, Lord, we need you. Well, let us remember well the body that was broken, the blood that was shed to take our punishment and sin that we deserved. But, Lord, also, that as Jesus was buried and dead and defeated death and rose from the grave, the promise is so are we. We're not just forgiven, but we're made new. Given new life, new names, new family. So, Lord, I pray now that we would remember pray now that we would set a form of life, a posture of life, of, of gratefulness and mindfulness of who you are and what you've done. We thank you for your grace that, that, that endures with us. And we just give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.